Good morning, everybody, and happy new year. Uh, it's a joy for me to worship with you all uh, in person and online on this first Sunday of 2021. And as many of you have uh, prayed for, and as I've seen on some of your social media posts, we do hope that this year will be a blessed one where we can continue to glorify our maker in all of our lives. As we begin today's message, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, last week we ended with the two questions that we can essentially ask as we ended the year, uh, which were, uh, we can enter into 2021 asking, what can I get away with? Or we could enter 2021 asking, what can I lay aside? And this week, we'll explore a little bit further on what that entails and what that means to lay it aside. Uh, Paul here is talking, and he has a theme in mind. And the broad theme that you will be able to see is evangelism. He wants to win people. In verse 19, that I might win more of them. In verse 20, win Jews, verse 21, win those outside the law, verse 22, win the weak. So win them to what? Win them to Christ. He shows us how he does it, but it is applicable to all of us here and now. When you look at Paul's life, you know that he was a master evangelist, someone that we can call, uh, someone that we can all imitate, rather. And while evangelism might be just one facet of the Christian life, it is fueled and powered by all the other aspects of your understanding and maturity. Some people, and some of us here, may also struggle with evangelism. Evangelism, you may think, is hard. And there are a few reasons for that. Number one, uh, you don't have the right message. Paul had the right message. He knew what the gospel was. How can you evangelize when you don't even know what the gospel message is? You can't be effective in your evangelism if you're not even sure about the content of the message. But Paul had the right message. Number two, maybe you struggle because you don't know that this is your divine call. This is something that Paul took seriously, incredibly seriously. He would say, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's Jesus who commissions his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe everything he taught us in the scriptures. Paul knew that this call to evangelism was a divine commission, a divine call. Number three, I was thinking, why is it some difficult for some of us is maybe you're ashamed. There is fear of ridicule. 
exclusion from social groups that you've always wanted to be in. But Paul says in Romans chapter 116, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation who everyone believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He is bold. He is not ashamed because he knows who holds the power of salvation. I think those are the big three, perhaps, uh, that might be hindering us in our evangelism. Of course, uh, there are other strategies that Paul would incorporate, and they were just brilliant. You know, how he would start in the synagogue and then, you know, go out from there. And we'll discover what these other strategies are as we continue to mine the scriptures and study them. But one of them is right here in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says he can sacrifice anything and everything if it might mean that he would win more to Christ. In verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Yes, even though he has liberty, he is free to do anything. It says he makes himself a servant to all. The word servant here is translated from the word doulos, which we know is the word for slave. He would give up these freedoms to the point of indentured servitude in hopes of what? In hopes of winning more to Christ. This is someone who means business, and this is the heart of the passage this morning. This passage essentially has two sections, and the first part is talking about self-denial, and the second latter part is teaching on self-control. And so from verses 19 to 23, Paul is going to talk about self-denial. And so we continue in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I have the liberty to not be under the law. But he would become like those under the law to win people to Christ. Of course, he's referring to Jews and Jewish customs. He has the liberty not to follow all the ceremonies, all the externalities that were performed, and he is right. So do you. You have this liberty too. So do I. We don't have to follow all the ceremonies in the Old Testament. Like it says in verse 19, he says, I am free from all. And he goes, yet I am a slave. Why are we presented with this paradox? How can you be free from all and yet be a slave? And he continues on in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And he continues, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. What's he doing? He is becoming a slave. 
an indentured servant. Why? For the sake of the gospel. In Exodus 21, there's a section on when God instructs his people on what the Israelites were to do after a slave was freed. And I want you to note that in the Bible, you could only hold a slave for a maximum, a maximum of six years. So the reason why you would have a slave or you would be indentured to someone is if you had debt. You had so much debt that the only way to pay it off was your own body. And thereby, you would uh, put yourself into bondage. And after six years, the Bible is instructing, after six years, you have to let the slave go. They are free. They don't owe you anything anymore. There's no way they can owe you anything more than beyond what six years can pay. So after six years, you would be completely free. Now there were some of those people who would serve under a master, and they would love their master so much they would not want to go free. To live as a slave under this particular master was better than being free for this person. Why? Well, it says in the scriptures that this slave would say, I love my master, wife and children, but I love my master and I don't want to go free. What then would happen and what the Bible would instruct is you would take, the master would take the slave and then bring him to a doorpost and he would bore through his ear. That means he would make a hole through his ear with an awl. An awl is a, a leathering tool which you make holes in. And so you make a hole and you would have an earring. That's where uh, you understood this person now is forever this person's slave. And then he would be his slave forever. And even in biblical times, slaves could hold high positions in the household. Look at Joseph, Joseph and Potiphar's house, right? And even Abraham at one point, he wanted his slave, when he couldn't have an heir, he wanted his slave rather to become an heir. But this is essentially what Paul is saying. He doesn't have to do this. He is free, but he wants to be a slave. Why? Because he loves them. He loves the people that he is ministering to. That's crazy, right? That's insane, right? Why would you do that? And you see the depth and beauty of Jesus' words. When he tells his disciples in Matthew 20, and we went over this, and Jesus would say to his disciples, but whoever would be great among you, remember, they were arguing and they were bickering and they were even debating on who's the greatest, you know? Who's the best pastor here? Who's the best elder? Who's the best deacon here? And Jesus would correct them and he would say, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many of you already know that the word servant here is deacon, and the word serve is also deacon. And it is synonymous with the word doulos here, which is slave. And this is what Jesus also puts himself as when he says, the Son of Man came not to be 
a deacon, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so some of you might be thinking, like I am, how far do I have to go then? How far do you have to be a slave, so to speak? How far do I have to go, and how many things do I have to start laying aside? And Paul makes it clear here. You lay as many things aside as much as you can so that you could reach someone with the gospel. How many things? Until you reach them. And he lived out what he preached. He did anything if it meant he could preach the gospel to more people. He went to jail. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was whipped. And he eventually died a martyr's death. He, lied, he laid aside anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. And mind you, Paul is brilliant. He could have literally been anything he wanted to be. People even today have a hard time believing that one man could have written such incredible works that we read here. Obviously, we know that it is because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But those that don't believe, liberal scholars and such, will argue and debate now on how many people actually wrote even 1 Corinthians. How many people wrote it? It must have been at least three. And then when you ask them, why do you think three people wrote it? It's because they think that they see three voices, at least three voices in certain letters. <clears throat> I had a professor, and some of you know this story, I had a professor who didn't like me. Of course, some of you who know me are like, well, that's not a surprise. But I had a professor who didn't like me. And what this professor did was uh, they uh, claimed that I plagiarized a paper that I wrote and put me up for board review. Um, and this means my paper went through all the tests for plagiarism, uh, including running my paper through the database of books and the internet so that they could see anything similar if it had popped up. It also meant that the board review was uh, the board, including the dean and the president of the school, had to read my work to assess whether it was plagiarized or not. And in the end, they found out that, you know, you know it wasn't plagiarized. Well, obviously, right? It wasn't plagiarized. Um, <clears throat> but even after putting me through the ringer, um, <clears throat> my professor came to me and asked me just to tell her if I plagiarized or not. And I assured her that I wrote every single word of this paper. And then I asked her why she thought the way that she did, and she responded by saying very, something very interesting. She said that when she read this paper, she read my paper, there were multiple voices in the paper. It was unthinkable to her that a paper written by a single individual could do this. And I think she said that I had, so she heard 10 voices. And I'm not going to lie. You know, I thought to myself, that's because I'm smarter than you. But I kept that to myself, otherwise... I, may, I might not be standing here, but Paul was in fact a genius, even by our standards today, perhaps even more so. No one, no one could exegete the scriptures the way he did, to the point where even the apostle said that his words have to be inspired. This is not a level that we can compare with, no matter how smart we think we are. And guess what? I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Intellect 
is a gift. The ability to see and unravel mysteries, that's a gift. But Paul goes on in his letters and he starts writing. But you know what? You know what? I have all these things. I do. I do. But, and he's, he's not being, he doesn't have this like false modesty. Oh, I'm not that smart. He doesn't say that. He does have these things. He is brilliant. But compare that to knowing Christ and the truth of the gospel. Compare all the gifts that he has to knowing Christ and the truth of the gospel. Paul calls everything rubbish, garbage. The Corinthians would say, well, this is my right, you know? I can do what I want. Even if it meant that they were to mow down those that were next to them, that were weaker. But Paul, to the Jews, he became a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile. He accommodated them so that he could have a door opened just so that he could go in that door and speak the truth. To the weak, he became weak. And by weak, we are talking, not physically weak, like to the weak so you can't even lift a plate. It's not that. These are people who didn't understand their freedom in Christ. These are newish Jewish Christians, right, who still wanted to keep the Sabbath. They still wanted to maintain old customs, even their relationships with their old rabbi and the Jewish community that we're in still attend the feasts and the parties. These were young Christians just emerging out of Judaism. There were also weak, meaning new Gentile Christians who came out from these paganistic rituals and now wanted absolutely nothing to do with them, even if it meant eating meat that was offered up to idols. Anything related to any kind of pagan activity or their festivals, anything that would point even indirectly to a pagan god, they wanted absolutely nothing to do with. And then what would happen? They would turn more and more legalistic. And that's where the question would come. They would ask, is this sinful? Is this sinful? Is this wrong? Is this sinful? Rather than asking, will this make me more like Christ? Will this make me more like Christ? In Acts 15, we see both of these uh, scenarios here at play. There is the Jerusalem Council. And when the Jerusalem Council convenes, they needed to decide on what they should do with the Gentile converts. People were getting hung up on Gentiles being saved. They are being saved. They're getting the Holy Spirit what do we do, right? And some, it says some of the party of the Pharisees. You know, it's always a small faction that always stirs up the big trouble, right? Anywhere you go. Anyway, some from the party of the Pharisees were saying that they can't be real Christians because they weren't circumcised. And then this huge debate ensues. Then Peter says that the Gentiles believe because God made a distinction uh, between the Gentiles and Jews, sure, but when Peter preached, they believed. They received the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas would then tell the council the signs and wonders that God showed among the Gentiles. Remember, signs and wonders were proof to the Jewish nation that God was working. 
And then when they were all done, it was James who would say, all these things were verified in the scriptures. He quotes Amos and he says, the things that you have heard are verified in the scriptures. And then he goes on in verse 19 of chapter 15 in Acts. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Don't trouble the Gentiles with Jewish customs and laws, but tell them not to do four things. And guess what one of the four things is? Number one is things polluted by idols. It's literally what we're talking about in chapter 9. Food offered up to idols, right? Remember, Paul's like, you have freedom. And James here is saying, well, tell them not to do it. And then you might be reading this and you're like, wait, 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 wait. I thought we had freedom. I thought the weaker person couldn't eat from food that was offered up to idols. And then he continues to go on. Sexual immorality. In any case, like uh, Gentile customs and cultures, they would normalize sexual immorality. Modesty was not a virtue, right? Might be familiar with that as we live in the Western world. Number three was things that are strangled. So they would kill an animal by strangling it, not cutting it, so as to not to let the blood out. And by not letting the blood out, you could eat the animal with its blood and everything. Excuse me. And then, finally, and from blood, right? So why is James saying this? Is James wrong, right? The, the disciples, were they wrong? The council wrong? Why would they do this if we have freedom? if we are free from all, indeed. In verse 21, he goes, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. See, there is a point, because what they were trying to do was they were trying to reach the Jewish people. This would be so, these four things would be so detestable to the Jews that when a Jewish person would see someone do this, they would be entirely closed off to hearing the gospel. Do you see where we're going? This is precisely the same reason. This is not contradicting what Paul is saying. This is precisely the same reason Paul is giving. And then there were men that accompanied Paul on his journey. And they took a vow. Uh, when you say, and when you read that, you would think it to mean a Nazarite vow. And a vow or a Nazarite vow would be done out of thanksgiving. Uh, some of you have taken like uh, New Year's resolutions. That's a vow. You're like for, you know, 150 days, you're just going to eat clean and healthy for your body or whatever it is. Uh, a religious person would do it not for physical means only, but for spiritual means because they were thankful. So they would say out of thanksgiving, I am going to take this Nazarite vow. And you see that in number six. So those are things like you wouldn't cut your hair. Uh, you wouldn't drink wine or anything grape-related. So you couldn't uh, even drink grape juice. And you can't go near a dead body. And it was done for a short period of time, like a week, a month, 60 days, maybe 90 days. And three people that we know of did it for life, right? Those three are Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist, right? 
That's why when they gossip and slander Jesus, he responded by saying, John didn't drink, you called him a prude. I come drinking and then you call me a drunk. There's no satisfying you people, right? Because John didn't. Anyway, Paul, when these people would accompany, these men would accompany Paul on his journey, they would take a Nazarite vow. And Paul, what would he do? He would join them in their vows. Why? Because they were new to the faith. They were weak Christians. He didn't have to do it. He knew that his freedom was, he didn't have to do it. But when they asked him to do it to the Jew, he was a Jew. And then Acts 18, 18, his vow ended, and so he cuts his hair again. To the Jew, a Jew. A Gentile, a Gentile. Why? To win them for Christ. He is willing to do anything. Now that we've heard all this, you might be thinking, well, isn't that just compromising the truth? Aren't you compromising? If you have this liberty in Christ, aren't you just giving in to old, like old customs that are irrelevant in the kingdom of God? And there's a truth, there's a difference between optional and not optional. And so limiting your liberty or limiting your freedom doesn't mean you're limiting the truth. And Paul says it here in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2.17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. They aren't just hucksters trying to sell you a bill of goods. They are not trying to pull one over on you, saying this is the gospel and that, and then going, give me your money or something like that. These men were serious about the gospel. And you know when somebody's peddling God's word. You know when someone who is a huckster, I hope, I hope so. It's someone who doesn't want the gospel to be offensive at all. It's someone who tickles your ears. You love listening. He's funny, you know, he's sensible. And then he appeals to your sensibilities. So what happens? They don't talk about the crucifixion. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about God's wrath. Uh, on that side note, um, Jesus talked about hell more than any other prophet in the Bible. In fact, he talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. So if you have this, if you know of this preacher who doesn't talk about hell, uh, they're not doing as Jesus really did. And this is what people today really are going through. It's, it's kind of amazing. We don't want to talk about fire and brimstone. Don't talk about that. Talk about Jesus' grace and mercy. I literally was uh, encouraged to talk more about grace too when I was training to be a pastor. Oh, don't talk about God's anger and things like that. You know, you'll scare the kids. Talk about his love, you know, how, he's, how he died for them. It's like, what, what, what's, what's going on? Are we not going to teach what the Bible teaches? Are we not going to follow what Jesus does? And some liberal Presbyterian churches try to do that with the song, In Christ Alone, the song that we sing. And there's this little, there's this line that says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, right? And then the next line is, The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. The wrath of God was satisfied. So till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so 
the PCUSA told the, this, this, uh, this commission group, told because they were putting the hymnal together, they told the writers of this song, hey, if you say the wrath of God, it's going to be offensive to some people. So can you take out the lyrics? Can you take out these lyrics? And the Gettys who wrote this song said, no, uh, we're not going to take out the lyrics. Even some big-wig evangelicals joined in the debate. We had people like N.T. Wright say, why don't you just change it to the love of God was satisfied? And they said no, right? And so they said no, the scriptures are clear. Our sins were expiated when Jesus' death on the cross propitiated God's wrath. And just simply put, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so the PCA, PCUSA, excuse me, I meant PCUSA, took the song out of their hymnal. You know someone's a huckster when they don't tell you what Jesus told his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. So Paul isn't compromising the truth or anything at all. This is not compromise. What is it? It's condescension. Condescension is when you set aside a liberty to meet someone at their level. And this is what in today's culture might be seen as a little demeaning because we might think or say things like, don't look down on me, I don't need your charity, right? They might be some phrases that you might be used to hearing or even saying, but you condescend for someone you love. I see our young parents do this for their kids all the time. They've watched Frozen 2 a billion times. And as bad as that movie is, <clears throat> they convinced themselves that it was a good movie for the kids. Let's go to the unknown, that kind of thing, right? Maybe you liked it because it was entertaining, right? And you convinced yourself it was entertaining, but obviously that's not, a stand, that's not the standard for what a good movie or story is. There are standards, right, for a good story. This is very basic, right? How was it told? You know, what is the agenda? Where was the truth hiding? How was it revealed? Please teach your kids this as they grow, right, to look for these things in the story. How is it revealed? Gloriously? Unexpectedly? I mean, these, this, these are the same criteria I have for pizza. I rate the pizza the same way, right? But anyway, Paul was not a people pleaser. He did not compromise in Galatians 1.10. For I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Compromise means that he's no longer a servant of God. If someone is offended by the gospel, it is their problem. It's their problem. If you're offended by the word of God and what the scriptures say, that's your problem. If people are offended by church discipline, that's their problem. This is Paul's attitude. He will not set aside the truth for anybody. But if someone was offended by some behavior that is unnecessary, then he goes, I'll stop doing that. I'm going to make that my problem. And to him, it was that simple. Uh, a few years ago, not anymore, a few years ago, uh, some of us here really started to get into yoga. And um, it was even in our building back in Paranus, there was like a little yoga group that was going on. And, you know, I just said, uh, you should be careful because... There's literally stances there where you're worshiping the sun. 
S-U-N, not S-O-N. So there's a stance there that you're literally worshiping the sun. And so, you know, people have done things like, well, I'm not worshiping the sun. I'm just going to be like, hello, sun, in, my, in, in that stance, right? And so people have uh, rationalized that because obviously you know, sun isn't a god. You're not really worshiping God. And so, you know, if you were to do yoga, you know, I would say if someone asked me, can I do yoga? It's like, do whatever you want. However, there are people who might see that and be a little discouraged because you're literally worshiping another god which does not exist. Try something else, right? Do something else. Uh, even my wife wanted to do yoga because she got some, like, uh, some Groupon or something. So someone bought a Groupon for some yoga lessons. And said, can I do yoga? It's like, well, it might not be the best thing. Might not be the best thing. So these days she does Pilates. And uh, I was like, Pilates? It's like, that stands for pilot. He killed Jesus. <laughs> it's like, rather, it's like, let's go to Hitler class. But it's like uh, Pilates. Pilates is obviously a German name, Pilates, right? which is from the word or the name Pilatos, which is from the Greek for pilot. Pilot is just an anglicized uh, version of Pilates. Anyway, so she does Pilates, who killed Jesus. Anyway, but, you know, all joking aside, whether you do this or that, people are so confused, like, what do I do? Is this a sin? Paul's thought was different. Paul was, by doing this, can I win more people to Christ? That was his mentality. When I do this, can I win more people to Christ? That was his mentality. That was the question he was asking. So whether you do this or that, he was like, I want to win people to Christ. And so in verse 24, he goes on. This is the second part. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might or may attain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Notice that if you're going to succeed then, you realize that this self-denial is really ultimately what we need to do. You're going to then need self-control. You're going to need discipline. Many of you in the new year have wanted and want to read the Bible in one year. This is so great. And I want you to continue to struggle, strive, and do it every day. Take five, ten minutes at least to join us in this Bible reading. Contact Ho Young Lim at hoyounglimscgsnj.org and then let him know. And then people in this group are now even sharing Bible app links that you can keep each other in check and things like that. So that's a lot of fun doing that. Some of you want to exercise more, right, in the new year. Some of you want to eat less junk food. Some of you want to lose weight. Some of you want to treat your wife better. I think these are all mine. I'm sure you guys have... Uh, resolutions too, right? But to achieve this level of self-denial, Paul uses a sports metaphor. Don't you know that? Don't you know that means, of course you know this, right? You know this. Greek life was dominant in Corinth, so they knew all about the games, the Olympic games, the Isthmian, the Isthmian games, right? Uh, which were held in Corinth every third year, right? 
Don't you know is a phrase that he has pointed to something so obvious that they should know, know it so well it should translate well to those in Corinth. They would train and they would also have to give proof of training. All these conditions would have to have been met and so that finally when you ran and that you won, you got this wreath and in a sense you would be immortalized. If I asked you who's the fastest runner in the world today, everybody knows who it is. Who's one of the fastest swimmers of today? You guys know who they are, right? You would, in a sense, be immortalized. So people would train and they would do everything they can so that they can win the prize. And in a sense, they were being immortalized if you won. But we understand, not really, right? You go back 2,000 years, you don't know who won the Olympic Games then. But at the time, it was the highest honor that a man could receive. But as great as that is, as great as this prize is, it is for a physical and perishable prize. There is an imperishable crown that we are running for. So imagine this. So people all knew. They go crazy for the games. You are so excited for the games. You know, at the time, you could even spectate and go into the gymnasium and see these athletes training. You're like, that guy, he, he looked good. He's amazing. Look at him. And they would get so excited because this prize was really great. But as great as that prize is, it's perishable. And there is an imperishable crown that we are running for. So he compares that. What's the race for? What is this race? What is this race? It's to win people with the gospel. It's to win souls. And if you're going to run this race, Paul is saying, run as to win the prize. You can literally see these people training with all that they have every day if you went to the gymnasium. But the people in Corinth were too busy asking, well, is it okay for me to do this? Is this a sin? Is that a sin? And in that sense, they were losing their focus and they were losing their eye, uh, losing the focus on the prize. They weren't keeping their eyes on the prize. They were damaging their testimony to their weaker brothers and sisters. If you know what to aim for then, you know you need discipline and self-control. Nothing in life can be achieved without it. You'll never succeed in raising your children without discipline and self-control. You'll never succeed in your marriage without self-control. You won't succeed academically. You won't succeed in your career. You don't break new feats of strengths in your lift. You don't get anything worthwhile without discipline and self-control. And the more worthwhile, the more you would have to be disciplined. You know, our string trio did really wonderfully this past Christmas. I can't say that enough. They played so beautifully, and I hope that you were able to listen to it. But without hours and hours upon practice, upon hours of practice, you would not have the quality of the notes that came out from those instruments. If you want to play better, you have to practice more. And so Paul first shows us the prize we ought to be running for. How precious is this prize? It's an imperishable, incorruptible, permanent crown. The comparison is made, but if you think about it, it's not much of a comparison. This is not to diminish the value of prizes here. I still have the 2012 
football trophy our church won in the flag football tournament. It's in my office. It means a great deal to me. It makes me proud to be your pastor. Just the fact that I know that there's an imperishable crown doesn't diminish my, you know, admiration of the trophy that I have now. But what does, uh, what it does, what it does, it puts the eternal crown in the right perspective, right? I remember recording drills and plays on my phone for you all to later review and practice some, much, uh, practice some more. You guys really worked hard for that. How much more than for this eternal crown? For Paul, he is willing to pay any price. That's what it means. I will lay aside anything so that I can win the prize. In verse 26, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. So here is Paul is starting to mix metaphors. But he does it purposefully to show that he doesn't train for nothing. You don't train to run aimlessly or just punch like air out, right? But you run toward the finish line. You box an opponent. And who is that opponent? Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's his body. That's what he disciplines. When you want to achieve something, you control the body. When you want to lose weight, you control your desire to eat junk. When you want to gain muscle, you control the body to not give up while you're lifting. There's no athlete competing that gives in to his bodily desires. In fact, the athlete controls his body. This is a basic understanding that even the world has. If you want to succeed, don't let your body control you. You control your body. And now that by the grace of God, we, ought, we know what we ought to be running for, he is saying, let's run this race for the ultimate prize that is offered to us. As servants of God, we want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, more than anything else. Don't let your spiritual discipline slack. Otherwise, we'll be fat, flabby, out of shape once we hit the track. There are lives to be won. Evangelism and a God-honoring life just doesn't come by accident. It comes to those who are ready to be used by God. And this is what Paul is saying. And this is what we also ought to do. When we understand this concept, we see that God is teaching and maturing His church so that we also should go after the good things in life. There are great things that God is offering His people because He loves His children. And it comes with understanding self-denial and self-control. And in Jesus Christ, we can do this because we can see what He has done first, imitating Him, taking up the cross, and following Him. We thank God for the privilege that we have that while on this earth, we have a mission. And that is to glorify God more than anything. And so let us do that. Let us run to win the prize. Let's pray.